Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor. And I'm your co-host, John Micton. Join us every two weeks for conversations with international school leaders, educators, and innovators who are working and engaging in the world of international school education. And finally, just to say a huge thanks to our valued partner, Faria Education Group. We'll jump back in later in the podcast to give you some more information about Faria Education Group. Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm John McDinney, your co-host. Dan will be joining us next time he's out and about. Uh, thank you again for continued reshares on LinkedIn and Twitter. We really appreciate your support and also the messages that we get. Uh, one of the messages is actually from Greg Hedger, who's uh, canoeing down the Mississippi with his son, and we had just spoken to him a few weeks back. So uh, if you remember that podcast, definitely go online and follow him at his LinkedIn link, and you can watch his son and him paddling down 4,000 miles along the Mississippi. So that would be something to consider. Anyway, today I'm very privileged and honored to have uh, an ex-colleague of mine, actually. Uh, Dolene used to work at the International School of Luxembourg, where I had the pleasure of getting to know her as a professional and the work that she has done with the students at that school and continues to do. So Dolene, a warm welcome to the podcast. It's so nice to have you here today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I feel very honored to be here with you. And now we'd like to say a few words from a valued partner and sponsor, Faria Education Group. Faria Education Group has been with you through thick and thin, helping international schools minimize headaches and easing transitions. Whether through paperless admissions with Open Apply, curriculum first learning with ManageBack, or school to home management with SchoolsBuddy, Faria has been your partner. What's more, Faria has been expanding with additional services, including professional development for international school educators. MiniPD is a professional learning platform by practitioners for practitioners, with a global community of learners and coaches. MiniPD makes the learning experience more personal, flexible, and equitable. Looking for a PD solution for your school or something for yourself? Sign up for individualized coaching and enjoy a 10% discount using the code ISPODCAST. Head over to app.minipd.com. That's app.minipd.com to book your personal learning coach today. Mini-PD embracing the learner in every educator. Well, great. Well, listen, Dolene, you actually have just moved. You're in Australia, so it's late night. Yes. Thank you for staying up for us of while course. here it's just midday. And so you were working as an international educator. You've worked in international schools. Uh, tell us a bit about your, your journey as an educator. You're originally from Burundi, kind of Give mm -hmm. us a little story here for a couple of minutes because it's so rich and I think it's a nice <laughs> point of reference. Well, thank you again for having me. Yes, so I am originally, I was born and raised in Burundi and then I left when I was 18. Um, and then I went uh, through France and then went to do my studies in Sweden. Um, and my plan was actually to stay in Sweden for just a short amount of time just to have my degree and then hopefully go back home. But then I ended up doing 10 years in Sweden and um, and I never thought I was going to be an educator. I, my dream was to work as a translator in the European Union. 
Um, and then I did uh, my thesis in a school because I had to do a thesis on language acquisition. And this, the three months I spent in that school with, um, with the teacher, language teacher, just I just fell in love with it. And then, uh, and then that's how I got into education as a French teacher and then EAL teacher. And then I moved to the Netherlands where I worked in, um, in international school, one international schools, but I also had the privilege to work uh, at a university level, which was very new for me as a lecturer, English, a French lecturer. And then I then, so this is where uh, in, in, the, in the Netherlands, I also worked as a EAL, not, uh, department uh, the head for EAL and I was coordinating the mother language program the mother tongue language program and um, and this is really what I how I got involved into lang language diversity and the importance of linguistic diversity into international schools and the importance of not only you know speaking only English but celebrating all these languages that that we have and then, then uh, I moved to Luxembourg, and then that's when um, I, I I also worked as a French teacher, an English teacher, TOK teacher, and uh, and I was also a grade level leader. And now I'm here in Luxem in uh, in Australia, Melbourne. <laughs> And uh, I am working as um, a French teacher. I actually started uh, recently. And then, uh, but I'm also doing now consultancy work on the side. I'm doing some work with DIJ, but I'm also doing some work as an NYP language acquisition trainer. Fantastic. So, and and yeah. what a wonderful journey. Tell me, you go into this school as for your thesis and you're thinking, yeah. I'm not a teacher. I'm going to be no. you know, the interpreter. What was it that in those three months, what was it that connected with you very likely at a certain emotional level that suddenly you're like, wow, I have to rethink this? Yeah. So I've always wanted to do something that um, that can serve other people. And for me, becoming a translator or interpreter was giving the opportunity to other people who can't speak the language to listen to, you know, to follow whatever it's going on. So it was always being, it was always about serving. But then um, it was those, I remember vividly, it was those, that moment when the kids got it, when they were like, oh, and they got so excited about getting it after spending so much, so much time trying to figure out and I realized that every time I went back home, I just couldn't wait until I went back to school to just have that, that, that those moments with kids having this aha moments. And, and I think that's really what, what got me into. This is something that I can, I can do all the time. And that's so interesting and so important. I think that's what educators really, that's what fuels us is that, you know, yeah. energy and when kids get it. And then there's that joy and sense of ownership and agency that they get. Absolutely. And uh, you describe it so nicely. So in your one thing that you talked about in your experience to the Netherlands was this idea of language diversity and making mm -hmm. sure that the languages of the students in international schools. And often international schools tend to be monolingual in the sense the language that they teach is one language. So 
in uh, many of our cases, and for our audience, it's often in English language, or maybe there's a bilingual component. But really, what something that you shared with a fair amount of passion was this importance of making sure we celebrate all the languages. And I think sometimes that's challenging, but also maybe not done as much. Talk to us a bit about why that's so important for students to hear their different languages in a context where English is kind of the language of instruction. Why should schools be thinking about that? Because, first of all, it's part of their identity. You know, a language is part of your identity. And I think celebrating, uh, even for me, I'm, I'm a multilingual, you know, I speak several languages. But I know that once you, you highlight and you tell the students that, you know, speak your language, you validate their, 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 their language, it's, it's a way of saying to the students, I see you, I see you and you belong here with all your different identities and languages. But also it brings some sort of language equity. It, it, it means that because you don't speak English, it doesn't mean that your language is less than English, right? Um, it, 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 even though everything is in English, but we still have to show the students that the ones who speak English, or even if you, and I, this is something I always say to my students, even if you speak a broken English, and I, I'm using quotes, you know, broken English, um, or you have an accent, you shouldn't feel ashamed of that because I had many students who was trying so hard not to have that accent. And, and, and I, I used to say to them, but your accent is part of who you are. And that means that you have learned many languages. That means that you have something extraordinary that many people don't. So I think having that celebrating those languages, you know, highlighting those languages and and uh, for students means, I, I think it means I see you and your language is important. That's such a powerful message because so often I think students, when especially students that are not native English speakers that are in an international school con construct, the English is so dominant and it's really you grades, you have to do well. There are certain levels of attainment to be able, you know, if you're ELB or, you know, your English as an academic language or you're progressing or learner, there's a sense of hierarchy. And I yeah. think sometimes that hierarchy can be challenging for kids as they try to learn a new language. And Absolutely. it's so true what you say is language is part of our identity. And Absolutely. so it really has a dual role. We're, we're highlighting the identity of the individual, celebrating it, but at the same time, making sure they understand the power of their own home language. And that's something I think that uh, you very likely have in, in your context as a teacher. Is it something because you've taught French, you've taught EAL, is this a narrative that's been important in your instruction and when engaging with kids is making sure they make that association of cultural identity with language? Because sometimes people don't. Yes, absolutely. Um... Yeah, sometimes people don't forget that a language is such an important part of your identity, right? And, and, and denying that language or denying that accent is, is, is actually denying part of your identity. And if as a school, we are consciously or unconsciously telling our students, even, even our staff, that this is how you're supposed to speak, we are actually denying part of their identity. We're telling them, we want you, but this way, 
not your full self, you know? Um, and this is something that I always say to my students, me as being an EAL teacher, and I, I've always loved the, the schools who have hired me as an EAL teacher, me not being a native speaker of English, because it's a good example for students to say, hey, listen, this is an international school. My colleagues are almost all, all of them are native speakers. I'm not a native speaker, but I can teach you EAL. I have things, I've gone through the same process as you because I've learned English the way you're learning English. So, so for them to see that, okay, she gets me because she's went through that, it, there is a great connection that happens oh, yeah. already. I can only imagine because you've almost felt the pain, not that it's painful, but you yeah, felt yeah, the yeah, challenges yeah. and the ups and downs of language acquisition, not being a native speaker. And then, uh, you know, there's that sense of empathy and also a sense of understanding maybe more than somebody that hasn't. One thing, Dolene, you are, are very active currently uh, on social media and also through workshops. You work with the Association of International Educators and Leaders of Color, ALOC, and you've been doing some presentations recently, and I'm not going to say recently, but in the last 18 to 24 months, there's been much more traffic, especially in international schools, with the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matters during COVID, there was a lot of traffic on this issue of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, and how important it has. And uh, you've written some fantastic articles. You're actually on the board of editors for Thai Online, which is uh, a magazine, an online publication that many of our listeners uh, subscribe to. Why do you think now people are more receptive to the conversation of DEIJ than before? Or is it just because it's much more of a global issue now and it's gotten prominence globally that now there's more capacity for schools to engage with it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, I was actually having this discussion with, uh, with another educa educator and I was telling him that I've actually started this, this DIJ work, DEI, not J, the DEI, way before 2020, uh, but the work was very hard because people uh, didn't quite get it and, and didn't quite understand some of the reality of people of color or, module, or people from marginalized groups. And I think with 2020, with, with George Floyd, um, because of the, this, this, the, the movement of Black Lives Matter and, uh, and everyone from everyone, everyone from all ethnicities, you know, whites, whatever, white, black, whatever. It was, I think, the first time we saw people from all race coming together for one cause, you know, for against racism. And I think that was the catalyst. And people started to have this uncomfortable conversation. And in international schools, something that happened was that staff members, kids, started talking about their uh, experiences with discrimination. And I think that when you hear, okay, this happened in that school, I think educators started thinking, okay, if it is happening in one school, maybe it is happening in our schools, you know? So it, I, think, I think that's what helped the fact that people started talking about it, saying, hey, it is happening to me. Right. You you state and, and you know you had been involved prior to the George Floyd event, and there have been many events before that have been yeah. horrific. And unfortunately, you know, 
George Floyd was a catalyst, but that doesn't diminish all yeah. the terrible things that have happened before and repeatedly. Use mm -hmm. use in your reflection, you're saying it was hard to have these conversations mm -hmm. pre 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the challenge when you were bringing those up? And I assume it's in the context of your classroom or amongst yeah. colleagues in the setting of an international school. What were the challenges you were facing and that maybe today are lessened? I think, um, and, and I must say, maybe if I give you a background, you probably it will be easier to understand. Um, when I, I was in my second year of, of teaching and that was, a, I don't know, I was 20, it was 2007, eight, I was 20. We don't have to date 20. ourselves, Dilly. We don't date <laughs> Something ourselves. About, I was very, it was, you, went, you were it was young. a long time ago. Yeah. I was very young, I was very young. And, um, and I remember it was, I had a, a grade six class uh, in Sweden, a grade six class, and I was the only black teacher. And then, as usual, I talked about the, where I come from. I've come from Burundi, in Eastern and Central Africa, et cetera. And then that beautiful blonde girl raised her hand and say, oh, is this why you're so skinny? Because you didn't have enough food to eat, you know? And, but it was so genuine and she was so happy for me to be in Sweden, right? And, and then that was the moment that, I, that was the moment I changed as an educator. It really got me thinking that my work as an educator is not only about teaching. Now, me being in that space where I am the only black person with in a predominantly white uh, space, I actually have the opportunity to break down these, stere these negative stereotypes. I have the opportunity to bring this positive image. And it became some some sort of a burden because all of a sudden you realize that I realized that okay, I I have to almost be perfect so that when they think next time about a black person, they think smart, they think articulate, they think all these things that you don't always think about. So that's when I started thinking, okay, we gotta do something differently in the way we speak. We we we, we teach French, and that was within our department. We gotta do things differently. Um, we have to include Africa in, in our lessons because there were French-speaking countries in Africa, right? Um, and I think in terms of curriculums, some people, it was, it's, it's not that they didn't want to do it, but it's, they didn't know how to do it. Um, and we didn't have the languages that we have today, right? Um, and I think that was really hard. And also, they didn't always understand why is it important to break down these negative stereotypes? Because for them, they didn't think there was a problem. Yes. You know, um, so I had to speak all the time and I had to bring this example from students just to show them that after all, we are an international English school. So... So that, that, that's why it was hard and it was a lonely work because I was the only one. And so I ended up doing the work within my classroom and not because I just realized that it was just, it was too challenging to do it within the whole school. Um, so I just focused on my classes and get the things that I was, I was doing. And sometimes I know, you know, you, you're passionate about something and you want to have this big impact over a larger institution. But yeah. so often it's those small little steps that small, can yeah. 
have an impact. And maybe next time that girl stands up, she won't talk about Fennin, but talk about, oh, there's this great and writer. And he did. That, uh, and he did. You know, yeah. 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 So I think that's did, yeah. so important. And I think sometimes, and as you have you know, shared, is that we want to change the world. And sometimes we want to change it fast and big and all over. But so often these um, battles is maybe the wrong word. These, these conversations, these lessons, these opportunities to bring it up really have to happen in a smaller space to have its impact and just build it that way. You also have been writing articles and you wrote an article recently that was very poignant about the situation with refugees and uh, the current situation with the Ukrainian refugees. And you highlighted again, the importance of us being mindful that they're refugees from Eritrea, from Sudan, from Ethiopia, from Afghanistan, from many different countries in the world. One of the things that very likely international schools have been good at is being maybe charities and being on the surface, very mindful of these inequalities. But I think, Nowadays, we're reeling, we have to do much deeper work because surface work where maybe you have International Day or you have UN Day and kids bring their flags and costumes and food, that's a very different engagement than really going into the depth of why do we have racism? Why is there inequality? Why is diversity so important? Not only diversity of color, but diversity of religion, diversity of learning dispositions, yes. you know? Yes. Uh, many kids are challenged because they have learning disabilities. What do you think nowadays schools should be more mindful of, especially when we start the new school year, where I have a year ahead of us. What are some things that you have noticed that you think schools can really engage with that might have more of a domino effect than just doing International Day? What is it? Is it in the curriculum? I'm so glad you asked this question because this is something that we've been talking about and I had, I've been very lucky to speak to several school leaders um, privately who are struggling with, 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 with that because DIJ work can be overwhelming and it's immense. And sometimes you don't know where, where, what you're doing. And then a lot of times I hear, um, especially school leaders say, if I could just have like a checklist, if I could just know <laughs> what I can do, like the first step and then second step, it, just make it easier for me because it's just so overwhelming. Um, and my humble opinion, and I always say, you know, this is what I think, I might be wrong, but it's hard to have, when, when dealing with DIJ work, it's hard to have a checklist because we're dealing with people's lives, improving people's lives and experiences. So while my work in a school, I don't know, in Africa, I might not necessarily work in a school in Europe or vice versa. So I think maybe we can, you can start small, depending where you are, depending where you are in your DIJ work journey. So you can start with small things like look at what you have on your walls, the hallway, what's on your flyers, what's on your website, what are you using for your advert, the books that are displayed in your library, because what you want to do, this is something that, that's a that's a quick fix, right? That's something you can do when you start the school. Just walk through during those first three weeks before the students come with your faculty, walk through around the school, look at the pictures you see around. You know your students, you know the population of your students. Think about, okay, if I have 
the population of my student, can they see themselves in, in my school when they come in the first day in September? If I'm Indian, if I'm white, if I'm whatever, Asian, if I'm black, can, can they see themselves in the school? If they go to the library, can they see themselves in the, in the room? The staff member, new staff members coming, can they feel that this is a place that I can belong? Because when you start with small things like that, what it says to people from marginalized, especially from marginalized group means that, huh, okay, I, I, I can see myself being here because they have, there is someone who look like me or someone who come from where I come from that they've had displayed. That means that it can be a place for me, right? I think that's, those are so things. that's so important. Yeah. What you're saying is that those things actually don't require any money. They just require time and good intent. And the library is a fantastic place where you can really, because there is such a rich set of literature. You were talking about, you know, Africa in the connection with the French language. They're phenomenal French, uh, African writers that write in French. You know, I think what is really powerful, what you're saying here, Dolene, is that as a school leader, there's some very surfacey things, might not feel very deep, but yeah. that will at least send a message. And it's maybe also yeah. the messaging that we want to send. So based on your uh, share out here, so we've kind of you know looked at the population, we're looking at maybe the marketing, the brochures, the posters yeah. around the school, we're looking at the library. What about once we get into the classroom? Yes, that's a very good question. So I, I, I cannot tell you how much representation matters. I mean, I think you've heard people have talked about that. There is a great quote, quote that um, I, I love from Adrian Rich and he goes like, when someone with the authority of a teacher says and describes the world and you are not in it, there is a moment of psyche disequilibrium as if you looked into a mirror and saw nothing, right? So I think this is a powerful, I think if every educator could hear that, could reflect on that quote. What it means is if as a student, if I look around and I've had this many times, um, students you know, reflecting on that, you look around and everything you see, you don't see anything that looks like you. You don't relate to anything from the books. Everything that you do are so foreign to you. It's really hard to thrive it's really hard for you as a student to think that this is a place to belong, simply. And there was, there was a great book, and I think I've, um, uh, there, um, from a book from Tracy Benson and Sarah Fierman, uh, maybe we might write that somewhere, Unconscious Bias in Schools. And you put it on they, the list for the show notes. It's yes, on the show notes. Yes. yes. So yes, uh, just for notes. the audience, Dolene was very kind and made some show notes and there's some links there to these books. So definitely roll, scroll down from the podcast and you can find the show notes. Sorry, I just wanted to point it to it. Yeah. So, and they, they talked about simple things that you can do as a teacher uh, to make sure that your students, all your students from different backgrounds can feel a sense of belonging. And they say, you can ask yourself, Three questions, uh, one question first, and this is for everyone, whether it's a school leader, whether it's a teacher, is does this material take into account the experiences of people of all races, gender and sexual orientation, or does it center and normalize the experience of only one specific group? 
What a great question. It's an, it's an amazing question. And then you have three questions. And this is three questions that I always ask myself whenever I'm doing, whenever I'm pre preparing for uh, um, uh, what a, a lesson or I'm putting some display, who writes the stories, who benefits from the stories and who is missing from the stories. I think if you, whatever you make in your plan, your lesson plans as a teacher and you ask, okay, whatever, I'm, I'm gonna have a discussion or I'm gonna, we're gonna learn about this and we're using this book. Who writes the story? Who benefits from the story and who is missing from the stories? I think if you have these three questions, you will be, you will be, you'll be good. I think you will. I think so they're important students. questions. And as yeah. you said, we're going to be good. But the reality is often the materials, if you uh, having worked in many international schools, I'm going to be a little provocative here. Most of the mm -hmm. books that kids read are from, uh, you know, very gender centric and very yeah. racial centric. And mm -hmm. even the IGCSE and the IB have made efforts to change that. But there is still a challenge for a teacher that is being given X amount of books or a certain curriculum, be it his history or social studies or anything like that. And so I think sometimes maybe, and you can maybe talk to this, is if a teacher feels that th the cards are kind of stacked, how do you recalibrate you know, what can you do as an individual? Is it that you start bringing in stories yourself? Do you highlight more anecdotes from the students? I'm just wondering if your list of books is all white men, uh, authors, yeah. it's kind of, you know, the question is quickly answered and then you're like, okay, well, we're stuck with these books. So yeah. what are some things that as an individual educator that maybe you can integrate other things? I think from, for the IB, there's a way, there's a lot of flexibility when it comes to the IB courses. You have a long list of books and there is always a book that you can, I, I, in my experience, I don't know in other, in all other classes, but I think with the IB, there is a, a way of flexibility. With IGCC, I'm not sure. However, I think that when, let's say that you have a book that you can't change and it's, like you said, well, it's it's uh, written by a white men, and all the characters are just one group of people. Um, maybe you can have a discussion with your students, and you can uh, you can talk to your students and say, okay, so this is the perspective of this character or whatever. Um, which perspective are we missing here? I mean, this is this is told from a lens uh, from a, a lens of a white man who lives from a suburb. Blah 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 blah. So, what do you think a man or a female from Southeast Asia or a female from, uh, I don't know, Iran or a female from, what do you think her perspective? So just playing with different perspectives so that the students who are in your group, who come from all these different places can have the opportunity to have their voices heard, can say, oh yeah, well, she's asking me about my perspective. Okay, now I have the opportunity to talk about how I see things, because this is not how I see things based on my lived experiences and cultural. So when you bring these perspectives and you provoke and you don't have to have the answer, it's just a discussion, right? And then have your students bring uh, their opinion and take it from there. You know, uh, I remember I had um, in, my, in, a, in a French school, we had uh, a, a text 
and it was about um, was about uh, Islam, and and then and there was a student who is Muslim, and uh, when I said, okay, this person is saying that um, it was an uh, I think it was a, a, a there was a story about a a, a woman who was uh, submissive, you know, because she was Muslim. So it was completely the, you know, what we usually hear. And then I knew that there might be a perspective that we don't have. So I said, so what are we missing here? There is, is this like this in all Muslim uh, countries? Is there, this is how it, it happens? Do you think that the person who wrote that story is actually Muslim? And then this girl who was a Muslim, but talked about it said no I disagree I actually I disagree with the author I don't think that this is a, a representation of and the discussion started so I think there's always as long as you are open and you invite your students and a different perspective I think there's a way to absolutely and, and I love that the idea that what you said was very important to me and resonates is that I don't need to have all the answers. It's about yes. engaging students to share, to have voice agency and giving those perspective. And I think so often educators are a little apprehensive and I'm overgeneralizing here, but there is an apprehension when you engage with DEIJ that maybe you're not equipped or you don't have the, the, the breadth and understanding of the complexity and nuances. But really what you're saying is, let's just have a conversation and let the different voices carry a bit of the story and give that perspective because yeah. that in itself is a lesson. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I really insist on that for educators to understand that you really don't have to have all the answers. You can be exploring the whole thing and learning together with your students, right? You don't have to be the expert. No one is the ex expert in that. We are all figure out things together. But I think the most important thing is creating, I like to say sharing power with your students, right? Sharing power with your students and creating an atmosphere where students feel like I can actually say something, I can bring my perspective here and it will be heard. We can disagree, but I know that I can share my view and it's not gonna be the universal view, the view of the teacher and the view of some people, but it's gonna be all of us. And this idea of sharing the power with your students, that can be quite traumatic for teachers that tend to want to no. always have all the answers or their teaching disposition is more lecture and content driven. So I think, you know, the, the idea of sharing the power is such an important realization and understanding, but I think also that journey to there can be sometimes challenging. One of the things that, uh, I think many people, as they engage with DEIJ, often they're not sure. They they're not sure what is the protocol or what how to approach the topic, and am I saying it the right way or the wrong way? And one thing that I think you know, and what you're saying, which is so important, nobody has the answers. Nobody actually knows this is new territory. So let's be empathetic. And if we maybe say something wrong, we need to give understanding and also help and mentor people to better reshift the way they're addressing these issues. Do you feel that's important, this idea of, of not forgiveness, but empathy and allowing people to kind of, as they walk in this new territory, know that they don't have to know all the answers or be 100% correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, and I think there is a, 
most of the time, what stop people engaging or if they engage and something goes wrong, there is this, this idea of shame. You know, they, they are afraid of saying the wrong thing. And when they say the wrong thing, there is shame that kicks in and then we have the defense mechanism that started and then there is no conversation, right? And I think that if people could understand, like I come from Burundi, a country that is so sexist and the people that I love the most who are really great people, have big, beautiful hearts, they are sexist because of their lived experience. That's all they know. That's their truth. So they can say certain things and they're not even aware that they're saying it. The reason why I'm saying that is because when I started understanding what's happening in my country and, and understanding that how can this beautiful person who has such a beautiful heart say things like that you know and then I, I could I was able to detach the two and see that okay that's your lived experience that's your unconscious biases that's your reality so it's it's so internalizing you that you didn't choose that's just how we that's how you were raised but now that you know you can be responsible of the result of your conditioning, if it makes sense, right? Yeah, so it's the same thing with racism. It's the same with, with, with our unconscious biases. I was saying actually to a, to a friend of mine who's, a, who's an educator, I was saying, you know, the unconscious, the racial unconscious biases that, that you have is, is, a, is, is the, how do you say it? It's the expected outcome of your lived experience. So you shouldn't feel shame at all. It's just, it's so human, you know, it's, it's just that that's how our brain works. But now that you know that, you can be open to saying when someone says, have actually the courage to say, hey, that was a little bit insensitive. Do you think you would have said it this way if it was this way? Instead of being like, <gasps> you know, be like, okay, that was my unconscious biases. And this person has just told me I have to be brave and take it in. So I think once you remove the shame and then you are really willing to learn and do better for yourself and your students, I think that's a great start. Yeah, and I think it's so true what you're saying is this unconscious bias that is ingrained in the medias that we're brought up with, the cultural yeah. rituals, uh, just, you know, whatever it might be that we're surrounded with. But I think what you're saying is that there is no shame, but the important thing is to be reflective and understand yes. that you have those unconscious biases and be mindful. They might slip up. You might say it and later realize, but it's the capacity to really self-reflect and based on that self-reflection, recalibrate and say, okay, when I'm in this context, I need to be much more mindful of my unconscious bias and I need to use different language. And I think so often, this idea of shame and fear is what makes people hesitant to engage in these Absolutely. so critical conversations. One thing yeah. that you talked about, Darlene, in uh, your article that was on Thai, you, you know, we have this uh, quite traumatic situation in Europe and with the Ukrainian crisis and there are refugees and that whole conversation about refugees and charity and giving and supporting and being empathetic for fellow mankind is really important. The reality is that refugees actually are not a new thing. Right now, 
coincidentally, it's a European country, very close. The borders are with, you know, Poland and other countries, you know, Hungary and Romania. And there's been an unbelievable outpouring of support for the Ukrainian community in the different countries and governments have engaged with it. This also happened in around 2015 with uh, the Syrian crisis. We had a big influx in Europe of Syrians. And there, there was definitely much more tension. Uh, there were large numbers, but there were also some more challenging encounters between uh, certain governments and certain communities in receiving those Assyrian refugees. One thing that you highlight in the article, which I think is you know, sometimes an uncomfortable question to ask, but I think it's really important, is that we don't treat refugees all the same. And there is a hierarchy or there is a kind of unconscious bias, racial bias, mm -hmm. if we want to say it uh, bluntly. And so one thing that I think is important is that schools often have a unit about migration or immigration. And are there things that you think that we have to be more mindful that maybe we're not, and maybe this Ukrainian situation highlights it? And you were very uh, empathetic about the Ukrainian situation, but also had the anecdote about your son, uh, your one of your sons, and how he's perceiving this being maybe the only Black child in a school or in his classroom. Mm -hmm. For you as an educator, what are things that we can do concretely that you've seen educators engage with to kind of talk about the situation, this hierarchy or these unconscious racism with refugees and how we treat certain groups differently from others? Are there things that you think educators can actually address concretely here as we look at the year ahead? You know, that's a great question. I, the reason, I, I really hesitated to write that article, if I'm going to be honest. And I think that the, the, that version was probably the 10th version <laughs> of, the, of, of, the, of the thing. But the reason why I wrote it, and I will answer, and it will answer probably your question, is I wanted educators to be aware of the fact that in their room, every time they go to, to work, they have in front of them, and I talked about that a little bit before, future leaders. This generation is what will make tomorrow's society. This generation are the people who will you know, have businesses, who will be lawyers, who will be maybe, you know, uh, government officials or things like that, you know. So it's important that our biases and our fear and what, what we probably don't have because of our lived experience that we don't give it to this next generation, right? And so when we talk about a crisis, the Ukrainian crisis, and and because we feel for it, and it's it's close to us, and I I get it. It's very close to us. That's why maybe in Europe people talked about it so much. But you have to remember that if you don't treat refugee the same in your I'm not, I'm, 
within, within your classroom, if you're going to talk about migration, but you focus more on one group of refugees, or you do something about only one group, what you're saying to students is these are more important than the others. So we are not educating global citizens. We're not doing that. What we're doing is, uh, what is it called? The, the, the transferring, transferring, if I can say, our own biases and, and opinion onto the next generation. And we're not serving them better, right? And I don't know if I, I, I answer your question, but I think- No, it does, I because I think, Dolene, what you're saying, and you said it earlier when we talked about the book, and there was, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to use the, the terrible labor, the white man yeah. book, you know, that mm -hmm. the author is, is a Western male, and you talked about, so what would be the perspective of, say, a Southeast Asian person or mm -hmm. a South American person? And that idea of whatever we're confronted with, we need to make sure we're curating and choreographing this conversation, which is requiring different perspectives and different lenses because yeah. if yes. we don't do that then we are going to have a very single lane single lens and i think yes what you're saying for the issues of the refugees is yes the ukrainian situation is horrible it, the horrors are unimaginable and we understand the gravity and the pain that people are in but that is also replicated for other communities around the world that maybe are not yeah. physically located close to Europe and they do yeah. want to come to Europe. So I think yeah. this idea of making sure as an educator, you're always curating and choreographing this rich engagement of like sharing the power with your students saying, I wanna hear your different perspectives. And if there are no different perspectives, you taking the responsibility of bringing them in. And also what you just said, Imagine the impact, the, the potential impact that can have on our students later on when they make, when they are in a position of power and they have to make a decision. Because they've been in that situation over and over again throughout their studies where we are always looking for different perspective. Before they make a decision, my hope will be that they think, okay, I need someone who has a different perspective than mine, who don't have the same blinders than me, to make the decision. And that's what, what that was, that will be the positive impact. If we as educators trying to bring that critical thinking where we remember that our opinion is not universal, we do have blinders. That's the thing, that's the kind of kids we could, we could have in the future. We need to have, we don't want we to need. put in the we conditional. <laughs> yeah, we need to have. And I think that's so, you know, I think sometimes, you know, as educators, we underestimate the power that we have in oh, influencing. Gosh, yes. Uh, you know, yes. and what what is the privilege? You know, I'm uh, Swiss, Caucasian. What with my privileges, what can I do to elevate the conversation of DEIJ? Because maybe I have access to audiences that other people don't. And I think that's one thing is also understanding with your privilege, there comes a responsibility also to engage in this Absolutely. conversation. Yeah, you, you have also talked a lot about uh, recruiting and mm -hmm. international schools diversity. What is something, you know, for school leaders, often that can be challenging because it's a very stressful time. You get a lot of resumes and, you know, everything's coming in. 
what have you maybe been able to work with school leaders or are there organizations that you're aware of or that you are actually are doing through your consultancy, helping school leaders having greater diversity in their hiring practices, which can be challenging, I think, especially in international school context. Uh, why, I'm not always sure. I think you have to be intentional. I think really, you really, really have to be intentional. You really need to be clear of what you want, who you want. And, um, and there is so many ways you can, I mean, if, if you go through even, uh, there are websites like Thai, there is a search now who have done amazing work to bring a great diversity of, 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 of educators. Um, but you gotta be intentional. It's easy not, it's easy not to be intentional because it goes fast, right? And also you have to think about something and this is um, something that I often say, if you do the same thing that you've ever, that you've done all the time, you will get the same results. If you hire or you use the same channels that you've always used, you will have the same results. So you gotta think about what can I do differently now to get a diversified uh, staff who whom our student can see themselves in. And I think that's so important is you keep saying that is when, you know, we had the anecdote of the, you mentioned the faculty walking around with the principal, looking at the different, uh, you know, marketing posters or whatever there might be on walls or in the library. And you want kids to be able to recognize themselves in the books and in those posters. And I think also it's so much more powerful when kids from an international community see, for example, in your case, uh, EAL teacher that's not a native speaker Absolutely. but speaks English. Absolutely. So there is there is a lot of power in that. Dolina, yeah. you're a you're a parent and you yes. have uh, two lovely children, and mm -hmm. they live internationally. How is it for you as an educator and parent? What is the narrative that you're trying to work with with your own kids that you think parents can maybe? also work on because so often you know kids come into a, a school environment and they have cultural exposure and different perspectives but then they come into a home environment where often that can be different what are some things that you would recommend parents to consider as they want to engage with this topic of diversity good thank you very much for asking this question john because i think it's a very important one um, thinking about uh, parents of kids in primary school, I think in secondary they they know how to. I don't think that there's so much issue there. I think it's important to talk about it. I think it's it's important, and I, I I see that with my own son who's almost eight years old. I think parents should engage in those discussion. Talk about race, and 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 and. Be intentional, you know. Um, I know, I know. For instance, uh, just a, an example uh, that happened back in Luxembourg. A friend of my son came for a play date, and um, and then her, then the parents came to pick pick up the the, 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 the uh, his friend, and they had a little girl who was three years old, and the girl um, looked at at my son and then said, "Oh, he looked like chocolate." 
And then the mom immediately said, no, you don't say that. You don't say that. And she was really uncomfortable. And I went down on his, on her level. And I said to her, I said, no, yes, his skin is like chocolate and it's so beautiful. And yours is like brown, yours is like white chocolate. So who do you think it's, it's, it's the sweetest. And then he, she said, oh, I like, no, I like the brown chocolate. I said, but brown and white together is beautiful. So that was for me to show the mom, you have to talk about this because if, if you say, no, 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 no. The message that you're sending to my son is that something is wrong with his skin color, right? So just be intentional, talk about it because it is happening on the school ground. Kids talk about it. Kids see the differences, right? So just talk about it. And something that is very, very important, if your students, if your, your kids are watching something and they, there is some negative stereotype that are portrayed, please put it in context, talk about it so that they do not associate this group of people with that behavior. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think yeah. it's little things like that that you can do every day to just put things into context so that kids do not associate. Um, the message I'm getting, and you've done this quite a few times, is which I think is really powerful for us to understand is that for example, the case of the chocolate, it's not saying no, but engaging with it and being engaging intentional. And however uncomfortable the word might be or the term or the understanding of the situation is by engaging it, you're not really elevating it, but you're addressing it and you're having yeah. that, you're being honest. Yeah. And I think so often we tend to, you know, if somebody says an inappropriate word, there's all this kind of tension and, oh, this is really yeah. bad. Yeah. And, but there is this, then there's a kind of a subliminal message that's going out. Exactly. Is, this is bad. So that means I'm bad, you know? And, and remember the age also for that yeah. kid, chocolate. It's what she, she, she saw him and she thought about chocolate and she yeah. loves chocolate. Yeah. So that's the, for, for her, that was the language and that was not a bad thing for her, yeah. right? Yeah, but yeah. it's the adults, the way we as adults are reacting that can change, you know, the message or where uh, things are going. John, if you allow me, I would like to go back to what we were saying um, about the walls. And I want just to specify something that this, the, the things with the display, please make sure it's just the first step, that it, there is more that's going to oh, come. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know? think that's yeah. so important. I just yeah. wanted to. It's I, this, I just yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I think, and, and thank <laughs> you, you know. for bringing it up. That is, you know, yeah. that's maybe the first thing you can do, but there that are many the more that you, yeah. that you can do. Absolutely. Yeah. I think through this interview and this conversation, the, the point that's really coming out is that it's the idea of perspective, giving agency to students' voice, looking explicitly for that perspective when it's not there. And when you maybe the materials that you're working with don't have perspective, bring the perspective from outside. And I think in yeah. the classroom, and you know, you echoed it very strongly, these are our future leaders. And we want to make sure that, you know, when they're in professional situations, they're thinking about perspective, diversity, equity, uh, inclusion, and justice. So I think those are really important. Dolene, we're coming to the end of this wonderful conversation, and we could keep going on. It's been really uh, a pleasure listening to you and also learning. 
What are some, maybe as we wrap up, any thoughts for teachers that are struggling with this or teachers that really want to engage with it? I know you've put some resources on the show notes and thank you for doing that, but any kind of closing message for teachers, educators in international schools and educators in general that are wanting to engage explicitly and intentionally with DEIJ? Yeah, thank you. I think, first of all, know that this is an ongoing work. This is not just something that you're gonna do for one or two months and then you're done, right? This is ongoing work. And it's gonna be messy because you will be learning and you will be uncomfortable. Sometimes you have, you will have uncomfortable conversation. The most important thing is staying in the conversation. You get out of the conversation become, because it's uncomfortable. Well, guess what? You are failing your students. That's simply as that. You know, as educators, we're here for our students. And I hope that this is the thing that will, that you keep in mind that I'm doing this for my students who will be tomorrow's leaders. Thank you, Dolene. What a great way to finish off. And thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and uh, sharing these great strategies and how we can be better engaged and more intentional in our own personal journeys with DEIJ. Just you can follow Dolene on Twitter. She's very active. And of course, LinkedIn and the show notes. So Dolene, thank you. All the best with your transition to Melbourne. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we look forward to catching up hopefully again very soon. Thank you. Thank you very much for having, that, having me. It was great. I have fun. <laughs>